out of Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Hi, this is Sheila Dean for That AI Show and the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast, airing weekly on Colin.com. We're really excited to bring you a very special guest appearance from author and women's advocate Naomi Wolf on That AI Show. Naomi is a lifelong advocate and interpreter of U.S. civil liberties and public discourse. She'll be discussing bodily privacy with us and her new book, The Bodies of Others. Don't miss Naomi's special appearance at That AI Show this Saturday, June 18th at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, exclusively at Colin.com. Save the date. Hi. Thanks for rejoining. Uh, We'll be listening to the Illegal Gaming Unit. This is Chapter 9 of Sam Cooper's Willful Blindness, which we have been reading rather faithfully here on Colin.com. So without further ado, we'll just jump right in. Um, This is Chapter 9, The Illegal Gaming Unit. Rich Coleman did not respond to my repeated interview requests. It was a complete shit show in the BC Lottery Casinos. In 2002, RCMP Staff Sergeant Fred Pinnock took command of the force's human source unit, handling informants, police agents, and witnesses. The position gave Pinnock complete visibility on the best intelligence files from the most connected crime bosses. As he was getting his head around the files, an epiphany hit him. BC Casinos were out of control, a shit show as one of his sources put it. Other than federal prisons, Pinnock believed the Metro Vancouver casinos had the highest concentration of gangsters in the province. It was like turning over a boulder and seeing a hissing vault of rattlesnakes, and his commanding officers in the RCMP knew it. The crazy thing was the force had no plan, literally zero, to target organized crime in the casinos. Pinnock could not understand it, It was like giving the enemy the high ground, a license to bank narco proceeds. It went against his every instinct in policing. He was a third-generation officer. His grandfather was a Boston City cop, and his father was a Mountie in Ottawa. Pinnock would sometimes think about growing up in Canada's icy capital. He was a chubby bookworm in grade school and spent a lot of time alone, and the bullies would tail him after school. When they quartered you, they would toss your books into the snowbank, sweep away your legs, and pin your arms back and rub crusty snowballs in your face. There was nothing you could do, just absorb the abuse until they tired of the game. But he remembered lying on his back in the snow thinking, when I get bigger, I'm going to do stuff to guys like this. And he did. In high school, he packed on muscle and he joined the football team. By college, he was 5'8", 210 pounds, and built like a bowling ball. He was an excellent running back, good enough to try out with the Toronto Argonauts, good at making people miss, good at taking punishment, but not fast enough to stick to the Canadian Football League. Some friends convinced him to try policing. What better job in the world to go after bullies? So he joined the RCMP. Right away, he was drawn into the excitement of the Vancouver drug units, undercover ops, and infiltrated organized crime. To call BC a target-rich environment was an understatement. Around 1986, the loads of heroin coming into Vancouver surged. Purity soared, prices plummeted, and people started dropping like flies in the downtown east side. 
and BC, bud yielded billions of dollars annually. Gangs produced incredible supplies of marijuana on mountainsides across the province and in residential grow ops across Metro Vancouver. This gave the Hells Angels, Vietnamese gangs, and the Big Circle Boys surplus commodity to trade with cocaine syndicates in Mexico. Pinnock gained a re- reputation as a capable handler of high-level sources. He had no reluctance approaching senior gang members and trying to bring them into his stable of informants. It was a fascinating world with intoxicating tradecraft. Sources would provide intel on the location of the drug stashes, who was combining on an import, how the domestic and international routes worked, who was beefing, who was going to die, who knew where the bones were. A great source could keep a drug unit busy for decades, and almost invariably there were kingpins eager to break down competitors by tipping police on incoming shipments. Pinnock worked the Hells Angels, the Calabrian, and Sicilian mafias, the Persian syndicates in North Vancouver, the Russians. One of his best sources was a senior Chinese organized crime figure who did lots of business with Hells Angels and also the unaffiliated importers. Vancouver businessmen with high-priced lawyers and connections for cocaine in Mexico and Southern California. It burned him, too seeing some prominent and politically connected lawyers in Vancouver getting rich with cartels, setting up shell companies offshore and advising on financial structures. Pinnock wasn't above a bug in the leather wingback chairs in the back room of a certain posh restaurant near the Supreme Court in downtown Vancouver. It was like the United Nations of crime in Vancouver. The biggest cartels in the world had a seat at the table, and it was a constant source of amazement how they co-invested on incoming loads, traded meth from China for coke from Mexico for strains of purple couche grown in BC mountains like Nelson. And the mountains of cash piled up in warehouses and everyone was happy until someone ripped someone else's supply. Then it was spades of shootings for weeks and bloody headlines in the Vancouver newspapers. That's exactly what Pinnock's... Inf- one of the biggest Chinese-Canadian narcos in Vancouver would say when he wanted someone gone, put him on the front page. So after three years of running RCMP's informant unit, Pinnock had digested all the intelligence and he came to a simple conclusion. Holy crap, this all runs through the casinos. When Calvin Krusty told him a command position for the RCMP's anti-illegal gaming unit was coming open, he didn't think twice. He had an enormous respect for Krusty. It was time to shine a light on BC Lottery Corps casinos. Madame Setso and her boys did not want to walk through metal detectors to board Great Canadian Gaming floating, Gaming's floating casino, the China Sea Discovery, and the ship's security detail knew that they did not have to, and for good reason. She was nicknamed the Big Sister of Macau, the first VIP room operator inside Stanley Ho's original Lisboa Casino in the 1980s, and Madame Setso was highly respected, actually feared, in Hong Kong. Her office was the Shuntak Center. The building owned by Chang Yutung and Stanley Ho, where the Hong Kong tycoons ran many private real estate, transportation, and tourism businesses. Many of the companies were intertwined, and most were connected to the Macau casinos in one way or another. The Shuntak Ferry, for example, carried gamblers to and from Macau. Proka 
Aramovic was head of security for Great Canadian Gaming's journey into the dark heart of gambling junkets in the South China Seas in 2001. It was here Aramovic believes Great Canadian Gaming staff learned important lessons on what he called the no-hassle Macau gambling method that would overtake BC Lottery casinos in the years to come. Great Canadian former management told me that he'd recognize the sky was the limit with these Chinese VIB backrat players. And an executive named Walter Su, an intelligent, discreet former card dealer with a good head for numbers, had risen quickly in Great Canadian's corporate structure. He was the company's vice president of player development. This made him something like a rainmaker in the world of whales such as Lai Chansheng. As Aramovic saw it, Walter Sue appeared to be an architect of VIP Baccarat gambling in Canada and the Chinese arm of Great Canadian. There was so much more money to be had in China than in Vancouver. The $500 bet limits in BC lottery Baccarat pits were an impediment. Gambling, of course, was illegal in China. And if you wanted to get closer to the fountains of Chinese cash, you couldn't break into Stanley Ho's Macau Casino Monopoly. As Walter Sue noted on his Twitter account many years later, there was a solution. Gambling was not illegal if you were floating on the South China Sea. You just needed a ship and the right plan. You could set up the back rat tables and run from Hong Kong, sailing right past Macau to the Chinese island of Hainan and on to Vietnam before returning to Hong Kong again. And the company could mint fortunes. We had $500 limits in BC, and we wanted to do $10,000 bets, one for more former Canadian gaming manager told me in an interview in an interview sorry excuse me Sue is the guy that put everything together is how another former great Canadian executive named Boki Simkimik put it in court testimony he's walking around with a piece of paper with all the numbers here we're going to make $80 or 80 to 100 million and that was his baby But to get the Chinese whales on board, it wasn't as easy as docking in Hong Kong and hanging a casino sign off your ship. The VIPs literally had to be carried out in small boats called tenders, and that meant dealing with junket operators. Aramovic says he and his staff would be shown pictures of the junket agents and their VIP gamblers. I was briefed that some important people would come through the security and we wouldn't really check them because they're junket players, Aramovic told me. I was instructed those players and their entourage are probably armed and have lots of cash. So they won't be going through metal t- detectors. They have bodyguards. I was briefed that those people are decent and junkets are smooth. They won't cause a scene. So just turn my head when they come up to the metal detector and they won't go through. This was the no-hassle method. And that allegation alone, which Aramovic made in a Texas court deposition in 2004, underlined the extreme rewards and risks at the center of Great Canadian South China Sea adventure. But the casino cruise backfired spectacularly. And legal transcripts stemming from the venture would help me corroborate allegations of regulatory corruption and the shit show in BC casinos that Fred Pinnock's police reports would also provide. Da, da, da. The China Sea Discovery was a partnership between the Great Canadian and 
an investment bank from Texas called Allegiance Capital, and Hong Kong real estate tycoon Charles Ming, a director of Great Canadian and partner of company founder Ross McLeod, corporate and legal records show. The parties invested $15 million in a rickety cruise ship, according to court records, that say Walter Sue and Charles Ming were the key minds for the casino cruise that, and that Ming planned to draw investors in Hong Kong. According to a Wall Street Journal story, the floating casino would run through Charles Ming's Hong Kong travel company, Come On. And, but court records and the journal's story didn't point to the man standing behind Ming, Come On. Macau casino magnate Chang Yutung. Chang Yutung, according to former great Canadian employees and reports from Hong Kong, was Ming's best friend, a partner with Ming in horse racing, and from my review of corporate filings, the ultimate controller of Kahan, which was a subsidiary of Chang's New World Development conglomerate. Former great Canadian employees remembered feeling the glorious recognition of face, as Chinese people call it, standing shoulder to shoulder with Ming and Cheng in the winter's circle at the Hong Kong race track. Cheng was seen as royalty in Hong Kong, they said, along with men like Li Shaqi, Hong Kong's second wealthiest real estate tycoon, who was co-owner of the racehorse Yellow Diamond with Cheng and Ming. The expectation from the great Canadian was that powers that be in Asian gambling would bless the China Sea discovery and allow the ship to access Chang Shuntak's center's ports. But Chang preferred to stay under the radar. Maybe he didn't want to anger his fellow tycoons by openly competing with his own Macau casino conglomerate. Or possibly there was concern that over the confidential RCMP files written by officers like Gary Clement that alleged Chang's association to triads in Macau and Hong Kong. Another factor might have been the U.S. intelligence that would lead New Jersey's casino regulator to bar Chang Yutong from casino ownership in 2009 because he allegedly ran three VIP rooms that are notorious for triad activities in Stanley Ho's Macau casinos. Whatever the case, as far as former great Canadian employees know, Cheng was a key backer. Cheng was an original partner all the way through. One former great Canadian employee who asked not to be named for fear of being sued told me in an interview for a global news story. But there was no access to any of Cheng's infrastructure, and that was kind of disappointing to great Canadian. Because you think you're partnering, partnering with a substantial player in Asia... Then you get there, and it's almost like they didn't really want to be seen being in the gambling business. Until my 2018 story for Global News, an alleged partnership of Canadian casino company with a gambling tycoon could trigger a new investigation, Chang's alleged involvement in Great Canadian's offshore venture remained hidden. But my story raised uncomfortable questions for the BC casino industry. What had BC regulators known about Chang's involvement in the China Sea discovery? And furthermore, what did they know about Hong Kong real estate tycoon Charles Ming, who was Chang's business partner and Ming's investments in Canadian gaming? A statement from BC Attorney General David Eby in response to my global news story said, 
significant investors involved with BC registered casino companies must be vetted for suitability and integrity by BC's government. Hmm. EB's ministry confirmed that Chang Yutung had not been registered to participate in BC-based gambling businesses. Chang's business partner, Stanley Ho, and Ho's family have twice been rejected as suitable investors in BC casino companies by EB's office confirmed to me. But Chang Yutung's alleged partnership with the Great Canadian and Hong Kong casino crews appears to have been undetected. Allegations of unregistered individuals participating in companies that deliver gaming services in British Columbia are serious, E.B. said in a statement. And yet successive B.C. governments apparently have done nothing about the allegations. For example, my questions about a privately held numbered company incorporated in 2002 by Charles Ming and great Canadian founder Ross McLeod called number 179 remained unanswered by B.C.'s government. And the government's redactions have hindered my document searches regarding this company. What I do know is that Charles Ming died in 2008 and McLeod died in 2011. And in 2015, BC's securities regulator permitted the controllers of number 179, which beneficially owned 3.4 million Great Canadian Gaming shares, to sell the shares back to Great Canadian Gaming. It was combing through transcripts transcripts of court depositions in Texas, especially statements by Proka Aramovic and his boss, Boki Sikimik, that led me to extensive interviews with former Canadian employees, who in turn led me to information about Charles Ming and Chen Yutung. The records also showed me that Charles Ming's involvement with Great Canadian Gaming and Ross McLeod was not just a Canadian casino licensing story, in 1999, when Ross McLeod and Charles Ming applied for a gambling license in Washington State, Ming's personal criminal history statement revealed he was charged twice for corruption in Hong Kong. The licensing disclosures said Ming was a director and a significant stockholder for Great Canadian Gaming, and in 1980, he was charged for bribing a Hong Kong public works official by offering a supply of complimentary ferry passages to Macau and hotel accommodation in Macau to a Mr. Anthony Brian Lawrence. Just a moment. And in December 1979, Ming offered an advantage, namely an all-expenses-paid trip to the United States of America to a Mr. Edward Trevor Kennard. A public servant, the statement says. And this was to reward the Hong Kong official for performing an act in his capacity as a public servant by giving the advice in relation to the development of a building and site in Hong Kong. Ming pleaded not guilty on both charges, and the Hong Kong prosecutors offered to drop the Macau Ferry and Hotel Benefits case. They proceeded with charges on the U.S. Vacation Benefits case. Ming was found guilty in that case, but he appealed, and the Hong Kong Appeals Court overturned his conviction. And the Great Canadian Gaming was able to expand in the United States in 2004, obtaining 100% control of four Washington State casinos. Well, there is the answer to how they would have gotten a wedge into Washington State. I just spent 10 years of my life as a native Texan in Washington State, and this explains a whole heck of a lot. 
That's my editorial sidebar. Dot, dot, dot. In the aftermath of their shambolic joint venture, Allegis Capital accused Great Canadian of fraud, and the bank's attorneys attempted to discover how money flowed through the China Sea discovery. Ramovic testified that in 2001, he received a $900,000 check from a Great Canadian executive at Vancouver's YVR Airport and was asked to pass the check to other executives at a hotel in Hong Kong. Boki Sikimik testified that the transaction followed an emergency meeting of Great Canadian executives in Richmond. The cost is huge. All the time they ask for money. All the time they ask for money, Sikimik testified. Sikimik had been receiving terrifying reports from the Chinese territory in Hainan, a tropical island off the coast of Vietnam, and governed from the capital of Haiku, a city of 500,000 people. His staff reported that a junket operator known only as Mr. Y had taken control of the China Sea Discovery and had detained great Canadian staff. He was not like other junket operators, though. Mr. Y ran spas and karaoke's in Hong Kong, one of the detainees told me. He also governed Hainan and commanded armed forces. Whether his power was officially sanctioned by China or not is unclear, but he certainly controlled immigration, police, military, and resource allocation for the 30,000 square kilometer island with 8 million inhabitants, former great Canadian gaming managers told me. In court, Boki Sikimik and Proka Vamarik outlined Mr. Y's power I know that it's in Hainan we, when we have to send money to pay, Sikimik testified. Somebody took the ship and the reports that I received, they're running away with all money to Hong Kong. They owe money to China. They've been paid some by Mr. Y. He wants to take the ship. I remember guys sending reports that there were guns on the ship. Everybody is, you know, running scared for their lives from the operation. Ramovic was one of the staff sending reports back to Sikimik in Canada. We had real trouble with Mr. Y, that mob guy, because he's been threatening some of the great Canadian employees there. To be more specific, Walter Sue, Ramovic testified, Mr. Y was making some demands about the money that he invests, and Walter Sue tried to resolve the issues, but Mr. Y wanted money back in order to free the ship from China. Right after that meeting, the whole great Canadian gaming crew just disappeared, like... Ran off the ship. The lawyer questioning Aramovic wasn't sure what he meant. They literally did what? I'm sorry? Like, ran off the ship. They ran off the ship? Yeah. Because of Mr. Y? Aramovic nodded. The only guys who's staying on the ship were myself and, and my assistant. It was an illuminating lesson for great Canadian management on the mysterious nature of business and power in China. It was very, very obvious to me that Mr. Y, a very, very powerful person in China, when he can control the customs and police and the sale of fuel in Hainan, Aramovic recalled, the standard reports on junket gambling in Macau explain that the junket agents arrange deals with Chinese border officials. This is so Chinese VIPs can covertly transfer cash out of China, avoiding capital export controls and receive the cash or betting chips in private casino rooms. Where the junket 
provides cash loans or chips on credit outside of China. And Big Circle Boys enforcers make sure the loans are repaid inside China. Call it the Macau model, the Vancouver model, the Chinese transnational crime banking model, whatever you call it. This is how corruption money flees China and funds drug, drug trafficking. In any case, the junkets are associated with Chinese organized crime. But the case of Mr. Y suggests the de facto governor of Hainan can also be a junket boss. He doesn't have to pay off Chinese customs because he's a Chinese customs. <laughs> he is Chinese customs. Unlike Proka Aramovic, not everyone saw Mr. Y as a mob guy. Mr. Y was a tiny guy. I didn't see him as a gangster, another former Great Canadian employee told me. I saw him more as a high-level politically connected. We heard Mr. Y's father was one of the revolutionary guys in China, but we never knew that for sure. There was no disagreement that Mr. Y had the power to deliver Chinese whales to Great Canadian, and he wanted a big piece of the action in return. There were bad people trying to control what we did, and they could control immigration in China, former employees said. Mr. Y wanted to take a stake in the casino because he could bring on the players, and he knew there was a lot of money to be made. He was the king of that island, and what he said went. In the Texas case, although great Canadian, great Canadian's lawyer objected strenuously to the testimony, Boki Sikimik spoke about Chinese junket operations. Did you observe any activities that you would consider to be irregular in regards to these junkets? A lawyer asked. Sikimik said yes and explained how it worked. Say you're the junket, you bring me on the ship. If I buy $100,000 in chips, you get 5000 or 10000 My guys send me a report that there are so many of them that don't play. They just grab the $10,000 profit or $5,000. I don't know what was the percentage and they don't play. Or they just go play a few hands and they leave. Obviously, under Canadian anti-money laundering law, these transactions are problematic. They are so-called third-party transactions, a hidden buyer behind a transaction. These transactions are flags for dirty money, according to FinTrack, Canada's anti-money laundering watchdog. But you don't have to be an expert in FinTrack's technicalities to understand that if armed men ushering bags of cash onto a ship were ignored by the ship's security, it would not be a kosher business model in British, British Columbia. In court, great Canadians lawyer cross-examined Aramovic and told him there was no proof that Mr. Y or anyone else in the China Sea Discovery was armed. But I found credible reports from shipping history sites corroborated claims that great Canadian gaming staff were threatened by armed junket operators in China. On board during the maiden voyage, there were three representatives of the charter company, and it was discovered that they were armed, one being a top dog for police in Haiku, a report attributed to the senior crew member on the China Sea Discovery said. The report said that Charles Ming and others were threatened that personal consequences could be severe if they did not follow the orders issued from Haiku. But the conflict was resolved. According to Aramovic, Mr. Y and Great Canadian came to an agreement. I've never been able to reach Walter Sue to ask questions about the China Sea discovery and Sue's role building VIP gambling at River Rock Casino. Through his lawyer, 
Sue has claimed that my reports naming him as an executive at River Rock Casino have defamed him. And in testimony for the Cullen Commission in 2021, Sue claimed that Ross McLeod tasked him with, the, with building River Rock's Chinese VIP business and his superiors tossed him under the bus after I stated started reporting on money casino laundering. Media reporting about issues related to money laundering at River Rock Casino intensified around September 2017, Sue wrote in an affidavit for the inquiry. Great Canadian had just been awarded a contract to operate casinos in the greater Toronto area. There was a concern with Great Canadian's senior executive group that this media coverage might jeopardize this contract. They began to distance themselves from me. Sue also testified that he never met Chang Yutong, and he never had a relationship with Paul Kinjing, and he had no awareness of Mr. Jin's activities. Fair enough. But numerous records filed with the inquiry showed that Sue and other great Canadian executives repeatedly wrote confidential business plans aimed at juicing River Rock's revenue at the Macau VIP market, including seeking VIP bet limits up to $150,000 and proposing deals with player agents that would deliver Chinese VIPs on River Rock for fees. One of Sue's confidential memos filed in October of 2014 proposed expanding River Rock's VIP tables into an area formerly housing security staff and building an inner sanctum that would be more appealing to Chinese and Macau VIPs. The logic of Sue's business case was stunning. China's central government anti-corruption and flight capital campaign will escalate in 2015, thus diverting a fair portion of VIP baccarat play from Macau to River Rock Casino. The effect of this action will divert affluent Chinese travelers to the Vancouver region to avoid unwanted profile in their home country. And the United States campaign against illicit money laundering will continue to intensify its investigation into governance of Las Vegas companies operating in Macau. Therefore, PRC VIPs will encounter more restrictions in Macau and Las Vegas, diverting their play to River Rock Casino. If this memo doesn't prove for some form of willful blindness, I don't know what will. In a prepared response to my questions for Global News on the China Sea Discovery Investigation, Great Canadian did not answer specific questions about Chen Yutung's alleged involvement with Great Canadian or directly address claims made by former employees. Any attempt to extrapolate from this business venture while relying on the comments of former Great Canadian employees or innuendo significantly risks doing a disservice to your readers, Great Canadian stated in 2018, adding to the, the company was a minority partner in the short-lived China Sea Discovery venture. Dot, dot, dot. It was entirely irrelevant for this China Sea Discovery case, according to Great Canadian Lawyer, but Proka Aramovic wanted to talk about loan sharking in BC casinos. His testimony for me supported allegations of potential regulatory corruption in BC's government contained in an RCMP report later filed by Fred Pinnock's unit. Aramovic was asked why he had left his job with Great Canadian in 2003. The main purpose of me leaving Great Canadian Casino was I didn't want to get involved in some stuff that they were illegal. Aramovic said, loan shark activities and selected barring of loan sharks. Selected barring of loan sharks? Aramovic was asked what that meant. 
Well, I noticed that the company and some people at the head office, including my director, were very selective who they're going to bar, Aramovic said. One of the security and surveillance managers meetings, I have been advised by my director, who is Boki Sikimik, that I suppose to direct my people to turn their heads the other way when they see those big loan sharks around. Because that's good for business. So some loan sharks were allowed to stay, and some small-timer loan sharks were asked to leave. Following Aramovic's uh, testimony that day in Texas, Sikimik, Great Canadian Gaming's former top security official corroborated the jarring claim. Management turned a blind eye to loan sharks, and BC's government knew it. I was afraid for my life and the life of my family if I go further, Sikimik said. Everything dealing with loan sharks, the activity, its biggest problem, the, the government is, and they know what's going on. Allegiance lawyer asked Sikimik to explain how loan sharks operated. I give you 10000 and tomorrow you're going to give me 11000 Next week, it's 15000 Two weeks after that, it's your car. doesn't matter if it's a Mercedes or a BMW or whatever. You sign the car, we lend the money, and if you don't pay, we probably go break your legs or do something else. There was shooting, there was people found dead in the car, and everything was connected to the loan sharks, so it's not a group of people that you would mess with. Sikimik was asked whether he reported loan sharks to his managers. I did report, and they knew, he said. The first report, they actually barred 19 people from loan sharking. But you bar 19, the top three stays there. And they bring another 15 runners, and they keep doing that. It's just, it's a part of the casino. Sikimik was asked how a casino could benefit by allowing loan sharks to operate. Simple, he said. Revenue. If you don't have money with you, you stop playing. Allegiance lawyer pressed Sikimik on the chain of command. You said there was someone else that you told to leave the loan sharking alone, the lawyer said. What I'm asking you is what the name of that person is and what position that person held with the company, please. Sikimik named the great Canadian gaming Richmond casino manager, Adrian Thomas. On the way, we discussed that, Sikimik said, and yes, we leave some of them alone. We kick some of them out. Great Canadian lawyers, great, sorry, great Canadian's lawyer objected to Sikimik's answer, calling it totally incomprehensible. So Allegiance lawyer tried again. Okay, when you said Adrian Thomas told you to kick some of them out and leave some of them alone, what did you mean by that? So we're going to go and we're going to kick John and Peter because they're small times to show everybody that we're doing something, Sikimik answered. And we're going to leave Mike and, and Al alone because they're big timers. Great Canadian's gaming lawyer objected to Sikimik's statements about loan sharks there, and the allegations were not proven in a trial. But in a 2004 sworn statement, Neboja Kalajdik, oh my God, stumbles, another member of Sikimik's security team claimed it is well known among the employees of Great Canadian Gaming who work at the casinos, that loan sharking in and around the casinos is widespread and that it is tolerated by management. I have been told by my supervisor and other great Canadian to look the other way when I see loan sharking activities take place, Kalajic's statements alleged. I also know that some staff members and supervisors at great Canadian casinos assist loan sharks by telling them 
which customers have been losing, and how much they lost. Loan sharking increases the revenues. Kalazic also claimed that in 2002, he was assigned to evict some loan sharks from Great Canadian's Richmond and Vancouver casinos because they were as many loan sharks as players at the tables. When we arrived at the Richmond casino and informed the casino manager what we were intending to do, we were told to ignore certain known loan sharks who were in the casino and only evict others, Kalazic alleged. For me, these statements corroborated some of the allegations made in Muriel Levine's casino diary records, which were filed as evidence in BC money laundering inquiry after Global News told Levine's story. According to Levine, when she took workplace safety concerns about loan sharks and gangs to Adrian Thomas, her complaints were brushed aside. Eventually, Thomas asked for a private meeting in the Richmond Casino, Levine said, and Thomas asked if Levine asked Levine if she was concerned about safety. Quote, I said, yes, I was. I knew there were gangs in the casino, and this was no longer a safe place to work, Levine told me. He said, you have nothing to worry about. These are only Asian gangs. Levine said she was stunned, but Thomas said something that bothered her even more. He then said to me, I have made a deal. They won't shit in their own nest. I couldn't believe what I was hearing, Levine told me. He said he had made a deal with other casino gangs too, but there were other locations. I was totally shocked. This was my workplace and he tells me they won't shit in their nest? When did my workplace become their nest? In interviews with me, Adrian Thomas denied Levine's allegations and said she had an axe to grind with him. But Thomas said the meeting with Levine did occur and shit in their own nest is probably a comment he made. The language was familiar to me, too. In a previous interview, Adrian Thomas had told me that he personally issued a strong message to Lai Chanqing, the associated Big Circle Boys, Betty Yan, and Kwok Chun Tom. I told him this is our business and we don't want any problems with his boys, Thomas recalled. We had security and backup. These guys don't shit in their nest. But there was never any deal made with Asian gangs, Thomas repeatedly stressed to me. If anybody comes out and says says that, I will demand to know who it is, and I will have them in goddamn court, and I will prove it, Thomas told me. Absolute bullshit. I, ha- I didn't have any dealings, and nor did anyone at the company, as far as I know, have any dealings with any bad guys or any gangs. Certainly did not to do with drugs or money lending. Dot, dot, dot. I don't believe that for a second. That guy is F-O-S. <laughs> in 2004, in the 2004 Texas court case, Aramovic also alleged that casino staff were coached on how not to report loan sharking. Aramovic pointed directly to a former BC gaming policy enforcement branch, GPEB employee who took a job with a great Canadian gaming. He's been explaining how to avoid report to report everything to the authorities. Aramovic testified. Aramovic testified and also told me that he reported many corruption allegations to BC Lottery Corp and GPEB, including the allegation that Lai Chanqing had raped the relative of a prominent great Canadian gaming employee. I have been told by both agencies that information is going to be processed, but right now 
It's not a good time because it's it's expansion of the gaming industry. In cross-examination, Great Canadian's lawyer challenged Aramovic's testimony. Great Canadian denied wrongdoing in the case, and it had been settled out of court. But Aramovic was left believing BC's government purposely ignored the red flags he raised in the early 2000s. That's why he decided to go public in 2004 and revealed his allegations about loan sharking in an interview broadcast by the CBC. Upon my arrival back from China, from the China Sea Discovery, I felt I had to do something more regarding loan sharks in lower mainland casinos, Aramovic told me in 2018, because I saw some of the familiar faces from time sailing on the casino ship in the, in the China Sea. His reward for blowing the whistle in 2004, according to Aramovic, was that the minister responsible for BC lottery casinos, Solicitor General Rich Coleman, harshly discredited him. Dot, dot, dot. Not unusual for whistleblowing. The Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, GPEB, was set up in 2002 by Rich Coleman after BC Liberal government reviewed the casino expansion that was started under NDP Premier Glenn Clark, Glenn Clark, who lost his job in the late 1990s casino gate licensing scandal. GPEB was staffed with the accomplished former RCMP officers, investigators familiar with serious crimes, drug trafficking, and gangs. Under BC's new Gaming Control Act, GPEB was supposed to have seven investigators in Metro Vancouver casinos, but from the start, they were woefully understaffed. They were given oversight of BC Lottery Corp, technically, but didn't have the same powers as police, and the Lottery Corp executives seemed to lord it over them. Right away, GPEB leaders couldn't help noticing the elephant in the room. Solicitor General Rich Coleman oversaw both arms, the casino administrator and the regulator. He was a hulking man about six foot four and built like an NFL lineman. He was a former RCMP officer turned real estate developer turned politician. And people who have disagreed with him said he has little time for disagreements. It was a huge conflict of interest, the money-making machine and the regulatory arms serving the same master, GPEB's leaders felt. They also felt BC Lottery executives had better access to Coleman than GPEB's brass. A BC Ombudsman report in 2007 was the first warning of systemic problems between GPEB and the Lottery Corps as BC's money printing machine skyrocketed. The British Columbia Lottery Corporation is big business. The business is legal gaming in British Columbia and the biggest winner since 1985, has been consecutive provincial governments, the report said. Total revenues for 2006 were $2.26 billion, report said. And most of the revenue came from several Vancouver-area casinos. And the report found that Lottery Corp retailers were winning lotteries at an inexplicably higher rate than consumers, and that senior Lottery Corp managers knew about complaints of corruption but failed to audit for systemic problems. Furthermore, the Lottery Corp was supposed to forward all reports of suspected criminal activity to GPEB in Section 86 Gaming Control Act reports, but they weren't doing it. The ombudsman didn't look at casinos in the 2007 report. 
but failure to share the Section 86 reports with GPEB is extremely problematic. Some in GPEB felt this could have allowed the deadly cancer of loan sharking to grow in BC casinos, and it wasn't a big mental leap for GPEB investigators to believe that damaging reports on loan sharking were buried by the lottery court. Dot, dot, dot. Fred Pinnock took over the BC Integrated Illegal Gaming Enforcement Team. Oh, I get in 2005. The unit was set up in 2003 because RCMP's robust illegal gambling contingent from the 1970s had dwindled to just one gambling expert in BC by the 1990s. But the unit wasn't getting traction. A couple of commanding officers rotated out before Pinnock took over. So his first official act was attending a joint conference with GPEB's leaders at a resort in Kelowna. From his three years overseeing the BC, RCMP Confidential Informant Unit, he knew that transnational and domestic organized crime was deep inside Canadian casinos, but GPEB wasn't targeting casinos from the top of the criminal food chain. They were competent, but focused on the low-hanging fruit, Pinnock felt, and I get... As far as Pinnock understood, the circumstances had no mandate to enter BC Lottery Corp casinos. The deal with Richmond Col- Rich Coleman's ministry was, I get, only touched illegal gaming. It was insane when you turned it over in your mind. RCMP's Special Gambling Enforcement Unit was barred from entering government casinos. But big loan sharks were not. So Pinnock had stood up in Kelowna and said point blank, we need to target crime and gambling from higher, from a higher level than we have been so far. And we need to target inside the lottery corp casinos. The call to arms didn't have the effect of what Pinnock expected. You could hear a pin drop. After a few seconds, there was derisive, there was a derisive guffaw. Looking back for Pinnock, this was the start of his, the end of his policing career. The way that the Solicitor General, Rich Coleman, had set up IGET was BC Lottery Corp would fund IGET's costs for about $1.5 million a year, and in practice, there was no deviating from the unit's founding mission. And IGET was only to target underground casinos, illegal lotteries, pyramid schemes, illegal internet gambling, and esoteric crimes like cockfighting. The consulting board responsible for the unit's direction included BC Lottery Corp's chief executive and the head of RCMP's federal police in BC and the manager of GPEB. Right there in the mandate, the funding, the oversight, Pinnock and some of the GPEB officers felt there was something strange. There was one story about a board meeting where the lottery corp representative barked, what am I getting for my money? The story rang true. I had read internal documents where a lottery corp executive had reiterated to GP Brass, GPEB Brass, that his staff had identified a big illegal casino in Richmond. What was GPEB doing about it? Pinnock was feeling this weirdness directly. He knew his first official statement as I Get Boss made him unpopular. He was feeling the vibe from his commanders like, stay in your lane, Pinnock, what's wrong with you? And some comments started filtering down that blew his mind. The vision for IGET was for you to kick over some common gaming houses so that these guys would come into the casinos, Pinnock called hearing once. What? 
There were many underground casinos in Burnaby and East Vancouver run by big, big circle boys and some, also some Italian mafia and Hells Angels. This was big business. The Asian and Italian mobs were running sports betting books too. You had to be blind or stupid to miss the connection. Organized crime didn't see divisions between legal and illegal casinos. But the message is settling in Pinnock's mind, and it felt like sacrilege to think it, was BC's, BC governments wanted to crush the illegal casinos just for the sake of divertal, diverting criminal proceeds into lottery corp casinos. There was no high moral purpose for fighting crime. Someone even told him outright, the feeling from upper regions in Victoria was I get needed to eradicate the underground casinos in Burnaby and East Vancouver so that the gambling addicts can be directed into legal casinos where we have programs to help gambling addiction. Bullshit, Pinnock thought. Government just wants that revenue. But you would have to be crazy to think that BC's government converted the dirty cash running through illegal casinos, wouldn't you? The answer was no. The other people were wondering the same thing. As Pinnock continued to bang his head into walls with his unit, there was an independent review of IGET's effectiveness and mandate in 2007, and it said Lottery Corp funding of IGET looked to, like a conflict of interest. Some interviewed for this review questions BCLC's role in funding IGET, which focuses on illegal gaming that occurs away from legal gaming venues. The review said some people also raised a concern about the appropriateness of BCLC present at IGET consultative boards uh, where confidential informant information investigations is presented. <clears throat> it was spelled out even more clearly by Larry Vandergraaff, director of GPEB Investigations Division. His official response to the IGET mandate review he said that the BC government and Lottery Corp had it wrong if they thought that they could improve integrity of legal gambling by targeting illegal casinos. How illegal gaming enforcement could affect legal gaming, other than possibly from a revenue standpoint in the legal ga gaming, cannot be envisioned, he wrote. Protecting the assets of reven or revenue in legal gaming by eliminating competition in illegal gaming is not an integrity issue. We believe that we may even be perceived as a conflict of interest. And Vander Graaff left no guessing at his meaning with this conclusion. Our investigators as witnesses giving evidence on the stand have been accused of being government enforcement bodies set up solely to eliminate competition for government-controlled legalized gaming venues. Dot, dot, dot. This is so sad. Pinnock believed that he had accomplished something impossible in a supposed country of law like Canada, for having the temerity to suggest that the RCMP could target organized crime in BC Lottery Corp casinos, he'd become the whipping boy of BC's justice establishment. He felt he was on a collision course with Rich Coleman's deputies. The tension came to a head when one of them demanded Pinnock share the stats on RCMP takedowns of illegal casinos. The statistical analysis of criminal code activity within the realm of illegal gaming will remain the responsibility of the police and not G GPEB, Pinnock wrote. Excuse me. To Coleman's deputy in March of 2006. 
Given the nature of our relationship with BC government, it is incumbent upon me to protect our IGET operations from the appearance of political interference at all costs. It is inappropriate for GPEB to be commenting on policing matters. What? The emails and comments that came back made Pinnock feel he'd been he'd infuriated BC's government, and after and several of Pinnock's commanders were responsible for handling the RCMP's BC provincial policing contract. They dealt directly with Coleman's de- deputies. Pinnock felt sure his RCMP bosses were now getting angry calls about his stance on IGET's mandate. He was tired of banging his head against the wall. Conflicts with GPEB and conflicts with RCMP brass. Conflicts with Coleman's deputies. deputies. It was all starting to feel again like his childhood in Ottawa. The little bookworm getting his face rubbed in the snow. All because I'm refusing to play the game, he thought. I've stepped in the path of the gravy train. But he was used to taking punishment. Instead of backing down, he went all in. He submitted a new strategic vision for IGET's consulting board, complete with recommendations he believed to make a serious dent in Canada's money laundering problems. His unit was down to three people. He said he needed about 25 officers to cover illegal casinos and legal casinos systematically all at once. Because at the highest levels, the evidence was clear. Legal and illegal casinos were the same economy. The same loan sharks, the same gangs, the same whales, the same cash flowing between Lottery Corp, Baccarat tables, and the hidden tables in luxurious Vancouver mansions. Even the same bloody Lottery Corp casino chips and the same card dealers. It really was that simple. So he laid it all out. And Pinnock's findings combined with those of the new IGET unit commander Wayne Holland were filed with BC government in a confidential January 2009 report. Illegal and legal gaming share the same issues, such as loan sharking, extortions, assaults, kidnappings, and murders, the IGET report said. And besides sharing some of the criminal issues, illegal and legal gaming have been interlinked when in some cases casino staff have directed patrons to loan sharks or to common gaming houses. Some casino staff have also been known to act as card dealers in common gaming houses. It was the same type of allegation that Proka Aramovic said he had secretly reported to BC's government in the early 2000s. Loan sharks approached casino staff. Aramovic and one of his colleagues told me and offered to bribe them and work with them. And the January 2009 I Get Report made it clear, if there was any doubt, that money laundering between illegal and legal casinos was a serious integrity concern for BC's government. Quote, The organized crime section of this report emphasizes the potential for serious problems regarding legal and illegal gaming in BC, the report says. Illegal gaming can be a source of income for criminal organizations and through the infiltration of legitimate gaming venues, they can also launder and transfer money easily. The report contains one passage with two stunning allegations. In my investigation, the importance of these allegations can't be exaggerated. When I finally obtained this confidential IGET report in the late 2019, after years of legal applications, this specific paragraph felt to me like the final puzzle piece in my collection of thousands of casino money laundering records. It was a smoking gun. 
I recognized this crucial crucial passage could not connect my investigation of the China City discovery fiasco. It could connect to Gary Clements and Brian McAdams' corruption investigations in Macau and Hong Kong in the 1990s. I felt that it had to connect with some information I had received from an RCMP source about undisclosed RCMP investigations in Hong Kong and Macau in the early 2000s. The RCMP source had contacted me after an independent review of money laundering in BC casinos was released in 2018. The source said the review by former RCMP executive Peter German didn't even get close to the bottom of Canada's casino problems. There were direct links from Macau to BC casinos, Las Vegas. The source told me he said a team of investigators traveled to Macau and looked at the set of casinos in Macau and the role different Chinese organized crime gangs played in owning the various parts of the casinos. In my analysis, the smoking gun paragraph in the I get report meant this a man connected to Chinese organized crime had owned a portion of BC lottery casino and BC's government had been in business with organized crime and the government was potentially involved in regulatory corruption. A conflict of interest or perception of corruption undermines the integrity of the gaming in British Columbia, the 2009 IGET report warned. One subject connected to Asian organized crime was allowed to buy into a casino. Open source information indicates that he is now dead, but his casino business associates have also have organized Asian organized crime connections. The regulatory investigator involved in the share transfer process is alleged to have known about these connections when the subject originally bought into a casino. The regulatory investigator is now retired from the provincial government. However, he still appears to be involved in the legitimate gaming industry. For my investigation, it still becomes easier to understand how VIPs from China were allowed to carry hockey bags of cash into Metro Vancouver casinos if explosive facts alleged in this passage are true. The reason is obvious. Organized crime loan sharks, organized crime whales, organized crime casino investors, money laundering of narco dollars, going into the casino via gangsters and money laundering going out of the casino and into Canadian bank vaults and casino stock shares. Organized crime clipping both sides of the coupon, like Las Vegas casinos in the 1940s. The I Get Report is a protected A version that redacts the identity of the alleged, alleged Asian organized crime figure. The BC casino that re he reportedly bought a piece of and the GPEB investigator who allegedly turned a blind eye before retiring from government and taking a job with a BC casino company. There are good clues about the identities of these alleged players, but at the time of this book's publishing, my efforts to learn their names and documents have been blocked by Canada's privacy laws. Uh-oh. Sorry, Sam Cooper. I do not have the powers of justice officials or the coloring commission into money laundering in BC to subpoena the documents that will reveal their names. And I can't obtain cabinet privileged documents from the BC liberal or NDP governments that could answer my questions. 
but I believe the Cullen Commission must discover all facts related to the Asian organized crime casino ownership allegations. If the commission doesn't, it will have failed in its mandate to probe whether regulatory corruption allowed organized crime and money laundering to drive BC's economy, dot, dot, dot. The IGET report contained many more stunning cases that underlined why Fred Pinnock believed the unit's mandate had to be altered. Chinese organized crime was the main player in illegal casinos. In one 12-block strip of Kingsway Avenue, there were at least nine underground casinos. But the locations shuffled so frequently, and ownership of the properties was so slippery, they were hard to shut down. The number of casinos located in otherwise uninhabited luxury homes in Metro Vancouver was not even addressed. But in one South Granville home operated as an illegal casino, I get found that eight Malaysian women were working as prostitutes. One was selling her body in Vancouver to pay off gambling debts in Asia. Wow. As I reported for Global News, former Crown prosecutor and prominent BC casino industry critic Sandy Garosino believed the IGET report connected to Asian organized crime in BC casinos to human trafficking and sex slavery in Asia. But it is the report's detailing of vicious loan sharking rings and massive money laundering with connections between casinos and banks that made IGET's call for increased resources to attack gangs and lottery corp casinos a slam dunk. There were at least seven major loan sharking rings operating in Metro Vancouver casinos, about 50 known loan sharks, and they perpetrated horrific violence. In May of 2006, the eight-year-old daughter and the six-year-old son of a common gaming house operator were abducted at gunpoint. The report says the children were told by the kidnapper that their father owed $300,000. A neighbor saw the children climb out of the trunk of a stolen vehicle and called the police. They were recovered safely. In another case, an illegal casino employee was abducted outside his Vancouver home, thrown into a car with a hood over his face, pistol whipped, stabbed repeatedly, and then dumped inside a forest road in Coquitlam. He was told he would be killed next time if he didn't pay a $30,000 debt. Also in May 2006, Richmond loan shark Rong Lily Lee was murdered outside River Rock Casino. She was a government-registered River Rock employee and also a loan shark inside the casino and was last seen alive on a security camera footage walking out of River Rock's grand entrance. She was lured into a gold-colored van by two high rollers who believed she would have $300,000 in her purse. When Lee sat down, the killer Chu Ming-Fang and his accomplice Guo Wilang whipped a black leather belt around her neck and pulled it tight. Why are you doing this? I only have one daughter, were her last choked words. The murderers found only $2,000 in casino chips and 500 in her purse, and they dumped her in a shallow grave at a Vancouver beach. Chu Ming-Fang was convicted of murder, but his accomplice Liang was never found. In another case, a woman borrowed $500,000 to gamble at River Rock Casino. She was able to pay $200,000 back by using her house as collateral to borrow money from the bank, but she still owed $300,000, the report said. The loan shark threatened that if she did not come up with the money, her place of business and her, her house would be burned down. 
And she would be killed. There was another murder and another attempted murder at two Vancouver underground casinos in 2007. Also in 2007, a report said the owner of a Richmond online gambling company, Poho Chung, was found shot to death in his Cadillac parked outside his East Vancouver home. His gambling company was linked to Nevada, Costa Rica, and the United Kingdom. Chung had been charged in 2001 with laundering hundreds of thousands in drug money. But federal prosecutors dropped the charges because they were focused on the drug traffickers he was working for rather than casino money laundering. He was facilitating currency refining. He was able to deliver stacks of $20 bills from drug traffickers to his many whale gambler associates and the high rollers that could exchange the dirty 20s for clean $1,000 bills. A lot of criminal organizations have colossal amounts of cash, mostly small bills in their possession, the IGET report explained. The purpose of refining is to decrease the bulk of large quantities of cash by exchanging small denominations for larger ones in order to more easily introduce the illegally gained funds into the financial system. This initial step also serves to distance the dirty money from its initial source by trading bills that are often filthy, torn and sometimes contaminated for new ones. And the report pointed to numerous examples of these bulk cash transactions in BC lottery casinos. In one case, in just one year, Vancouver Bank bought Vancouver Bank employee bought chips with cash at four Metro Vancouver casinos for a total of $4.9 million. In June of 2007 alone, he purchased casino chips worth $3.287 million. Another man who frequented the River Rock Casino, the Starlight Casino in New Westminster, the Edgewater Casino in Vancouver, and the Gateway Casino in Burnaby logged 285 large cash transaction reports for a total of Canadian $8.7 million and 62,000 US dollars. And the RCMP knew this wasn't just a BC problem. The report said many investigations across the country have shown that members of organized crime also use casinos for lo- loan sharking and money laundering, and that some of these criminal elements have successfully infiltrated the industry. The report said illegal sports betting was also believed to be in a massive business connected to legal and illegal casinos. IGET had received a request from Hong Kong police to identify a Vancouver phone number believed to be connected to a Chinese bookmaking ring. One Chinese bookie reported took bets of up to $200,000. The Sicilian and Calabrian mafias were involved in casinos and bookmaking too. In 2001, an investigation surfaced bets of $4 million per week the whole operation driven by the Rizzuto Organized Crime Group out of Montreal. Targets in Quebec were charged, but there were no charges in BC, probably because the RCMP had no illegal gambling experts, the report said. Aside from providing mind-blowing evidence of criminality in BC casinos, the report indicated that Canada's anti-money laundering system was a sham. FinTrack had provided BC police with evidence of 40 million in suspected casino money laundering transactions in several years. And Canada's dirty money laundering reporting system, which the Ministry of Finance administered in Ottawa, police can't directly access FinTrack's data for privacy reasons. 
but they are supposed to follow up on Fintrack's criminal case disclosures. But the report found that police managers have suggested that because of other resources and lack of resources at this time, nothing is being done to investigate these situations. The January 2009 report concluded with a number of recommendations, including instituting the type of racketeering laws that enabled the United States government to weaken Italian mafia families that had held jurisdiction in such as New York City in a stranglehold. Recommendations included use other charges such as criminal organization charges, conspiracy charges, proceed crime, proceeds of crime legislation or civil forfeiture to combat illegal gaming. Use Revenue Canada to investigate offenders and take profit out of illegal gaming. Use immigration laws for deportation of certain offenders. That I get be the central database for all gaming-related criminal information in BC. Gaming-related criminal activities are handled by many different police jurisdictions, which serves to fragment operations and not intelligence-led policing. That I get would... Follow a similar system to Ontario's provincially funded organized crime section, a legal gambling unit, which offers services to all police agencies in Ontario. That IGED would lead a police-wide or coordinated attack on organized crime in BC illegal gaming. IGED will have a significant increase in resources with 25 full-time officers supported by analysts. A dedicated BC Crown prosecutor trained in illegal gaming and money laundering would be assigned to handle IGET charges. There will be mandatory illegal gaming training for all police officers trained in RCMP federal programs and BC police training programs. But the recommendations were ignored. Dot, dot, dot. Hold the phone. I am going to go get something to drink. I need a tiny little break. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to... I'm going to upload a promo here while I seek to have a break, but it's not allowing me to do it. So I might, I might just have to tough it out through this next section of this chapter. These chapters are getting long. Okay. So dot, dot, dot. Fred Pinnock tried to keep his hands on the steering wheel as his heart raced and stabs of pain rocked him against the driver's seat. He made it only two blocks. He eased over to the curb and braced himself. I'm having a damn heart attack, he said. He had just left IGET's semi-annual meeting with GPEB and RCMP Brass. His boss, the man directly responsible for maintaining the RCMP's provincial contract with Rich Coleman's ministry, had wrenched around in a chair and started screaming at him in front of everyone. Pinnock sat in his car and caught his breath. Just then, another commanding officer called him. Pinnock, it just isn't working. The best thing to do is to fall on your sword. He drove home and decided to leave the force. But his plan to expand IGET was pressed forward by his successor in late 2008. A review of the unit's effectiveness had been completed. A decision to discontinue IGET at this point does not seem appropriate, the review had said. But in April 2009, BC's government did, did disband IGET, citing funding pressures at BC Lottery Corp. The money machine that took in about $2.6 billion per year and forwarded over $1 billion in revenue to the government. Pinnock was so disturbed by the decision that he burned his police files. 
The one thing that helped him through the pain was the hope that someday there would be a public inquiry into BC casino money laundering. Pinnock knew what he'd say if called to testify. He had concluded that his bosses didn't care about public safety. They didn't care about fighting organized crime, about gambling addicts, about murders, about kids tossed into cars at gunpoint, about thousands of heroin and fentanyl addicts dying in downtown Eastside, about money laundered in Vancouver's glass towers. Inside, he knew it. He knew that there was no way the RCMP's leader in BC would anger their masters in Ottawa by conflicting with BC's government and endangering the provincial policing contract. These guys don't give a shit about public safety, he told himself. It was all designed to maximize revenues. These accusations were difficult to prove, but Pinnock had a way to test his theory. He sent an emissary, his girlfriend, MLA Naomi Yamamoto, to convey a message to Bridge Coleman. He had to know whether his reporting at IGET had made it up to Coleman's desk. He had to know, with damning evidence IGET put forward in 2009, how, many, how any government could choose to disband the unit. And so Yamamoto pa- passed the message, Fred Pinnock wants you to know there are major criminal problems in our government casinos. He wants to meet with you to discuss this. Due to BC Liberal Party rules, Yamamoto couldn't inform Pinnock what Coleman had said when she approached him at the cabinet meeting. But she characterized Coleman's response as brutal, dismissive, and embarrassing to her, Pinnock says. Coleman was furious, Pinnock concluded, because he didn't want the cabinet to see him being informed of gangs in BC lottery casinos. So the shit show would continue. For my story with Global News on the 2009 IGET report, the former BC prosecutor Sandy Garosino reviewed the report's details. It is stunning to me that any government official would be provided this information and the Solicitor General's response was rather than to grant police the resources they were seeking to do the reverse and disband the unit, Garosino said. Children were kidnapped and murders took place in the pursuit of money and the provincial government knew it. You have every appearance of human trafficking, women forced into prostitution. It's not just that they did nothing, but that they actively disbanded this unit. So it is as if they had an intervention in making the police stop from looking at the corruption they wanted to probe. And Dennis Munier, former deputy director of FinTrack, also reviewed the report for me. He called the revelations explosive. For licensing, casinos are expected to conduct due diligence on the owners. The employees and any associates to ensure criminals and their associates are nowhere near casino ownerships or operations, Munia said. In my view, if the criminal casino ownership allegations were reported to anyone in BC government and RCMP, and they were not further investigated, there is a breach. Because there is a fiduciary or legal responsibility to the public. This is shocking. Rich Coleman did not respond to my repeated interview request, but he provided this statement in 2020. As you know, Justice Austin Cullen is expected to begin his inquiry into these matters this spring, so I have full confidence that Justin Cullen will do his work thoroughly, and as I have stated previously, I will cooperate with him should I be requested to. I will also say that as minister, I carried out my fiduciary and legal duties 
and to insinuate otherwise would be incorrect. And that is the end of that chapter. What a big deal. Wow. And so as we learned yesterday, the Cullen uh, Gaming Commission has, has continued. The, it was stopped at the beginning of the reading of this book that, that they had stopped the, any investigation into BC um, gaming. But as of yesterday, news reports were that the Cullen Commission had resumed and that they would be investigating BC Lottery Corp and government-funded, government-beneficiary casinos. So something is happening. So continue to listen. Thank you for joining. Uh, it has been quite an intense read here the last several days. Um, the next chapter is Killing the Golden Goose. It is just astonishing how much money Canada, federal Canada, is making from Chinese gangsters. And if you don't think that affects or impacts Justin Trudeau's politics somewhere up the food chain, I, I can't imagine. Because of the way these people behave, they're like, oh, well, they have money, so if you stop it, you're the bad guy. Which is very, very close to what the sensibility is in, um, in Western Washington. And now you know why, because similar things are happening. They snaked into the casinos. As of this chapter, we learned that they snaked into the casinos, legal casinos, in Washington State, which means A.G. Bob Ferguson could be probed or asked or plied about this matter and um, gaming enforcement with regards to some of this import-export business. We'll see, man. This is riveting stuff. It is really putting... Putting a lot of puzzle pieces together for me, anyways. We'll be back tomorrow at 7.20. Thank you for joining us here at the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. This has been another edition of Unsanctioned Your Mind, the 2022 Summer Reading Series. We will continue tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast archives at Substack, Automatic, iHeartRadio podcasts and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.